I remember being 12 years old and I had an allowance and I would, I would buy her Father's Day cards and give them to her because I mean she was my mom and she was my dad too. So, but growing up without a specific father figure, I, I feel like it defined me and made me like more independent, but it also gave me, it gave me trust issues. I have a lot of trust issues based on that, especially specifically with men. Hi, I'm Chris Michael and you're listening to the Fatherless by Suicide series. My father took his own life when I was three and I kept that a secret from most everyone for 30 years. It wasn't until I turned older than he lived that I opened up. And since then, I've been riding my old, somewhat trusty motorcycle across the United States to meet with men to learn how they have navigated their course of manhood, fatherhood, and healing in the wake of their father's suicides. In each episode, you'll hear insights from one of the inspiring men I had the privilege to meet. You'll also hear my own story and the twists and turns that I had on the interstate of grief and healing. If you'd like to participate in this project or support us, find us at fatherlessbysuicide.com. It's fast approaching 90 degrees in the concrete swamp of Brooklyn, and I've got to get through Manhattan morning rush hour to Hell's Kitchen in 30 minutes for an interview. Not just any interview. This is my first interview. I haven't slept all night, and I'm afraid. A sensation that is super rare for me. You know, ask a girl for a number, no problem. Facilitate a 10-day workshop for 200 people from 70 countries, I'm your guy. But ask me to talk with another man about how his father's suicide has affected him, I'm a total ball of nerves and shaking with shivers. So I'm on my bike and I'm trying to get her started up and I'm just thinking of how I'm going to fail my first interview attempt and just as I completely sweat through my t-shirt under my motorcycle jacket, my bike starts up. I rev her, she keeps maintained, all of a sudden I'm feeling more buoyant and I feel like it's a sign just that she started. I feel like the gods and goddesses are on my side and so... I get up on to Brooklyn Bridge, and as I'm crossing, I realize that no one has asked me the very questions that I'm about to ask Justin. And they're good questions. Um, not just because I wrote them, but they're good because I know these are the questions that I avoid. And I've spent three decades basically skirting around them. And so I w- myself would be pretty scared about honestly answering them. So I was excited to hear what Justin thought of them and if he would be open and willing to share. I turn off the West Side Highway and I park my bike and I'm in Hell's Kitchen and it felt like that. It felt so hot. And the little that I know of Justin is that he's 26 years old. He lives in Paris and he lost his father when his father was 38 years old. And he was the first person that volunteered to do an interview with me. And from the get-go, I see that Justin's an energetic and charming guy. Um, I learned that he's a Michigander, a Midwesterner like me, and he was in New York City for just... A little bit of work and we had about an hour before he needed to catch his flight back home to Paris. So we met up at a coffee shop and I learned that Justin had talked with very few other people about his father's death. When I designed this project I knew I didn't want to do interviews in some dark closed studio. I wanted to go where the men would be most comfortable and open. And I knew that there may be audio problems but it wasn't until my interview with Justin started that I saw how challenging this could be. The walls were New York City paper thin so we did the best we could. We turned off the fans, we tried to sit close, and to get it started, I just asked Justin about his childhood. I grew up in Jackson, Michigan. It's a smaller town. It's maybe fifty or 60,000 people. Semi-rural, conservative, not very open-minded. I don't think I was looked down upon, but I mean, there weren't a lot of families in my situation. I mean, specifically just with growing up in a single-parent home. I saw other people's fathers, and I was like, I don't have that. And I was like, my mom is my mom, and I was like, and she's my dad. I was like, she's, she is it. Like, in my mind, I didn't have a father growing up. 
which is I and I had a lot of resentment about that specifically. It was really hard to rekindle that relationship with him when I did. It was it was really tough. But I mean, my mom always was very encouraging, and she always wanted me to have a relationship with him just because she knew it was it was important, and she knew that he's he still cared. I I never thought of him as strong though, even regardless of having like guns or you know very stereotypically masculine things. I never. I never thought of those as being actually masculine because, like, that's to me in my mind that's not strength. Like, the things that the core values that, like, my mother, for instance, represents that strength in my mind. Like, he was hit or miss in and out quite often throughout my life. But I would see my dad occasionally, maybe like one weekend, two weekends a month until I was about, I think, four years old, and then he enrolled in the military, and then he was shipped off to Bosnia for the war in the nineties. So I didn't see him for about five or six years, and I didn't really get that much time to speak to him. So we grew apart a lot. And then he came back, and I mean, we just didn't have a healthy relationship growing up. We had a lot of resentment, and there was a lot of issues, and he resented my mom, so I resented him for resenting my mom because she was always there for me. And it just was very, it was difficult growing up. But then when I was about 14 or 15, I started getting my bearings, and I started you know, maturing a little bit. So I reached out to him, and we started developing a relationship. And, the last time I saw him, I was actually in a um, theater piece. I was in Greece, and he drove, he lived in Kentucky, he drove seven hours to come just see the show. We hung out for like two hours, and then he drove back because he had to work the next day. So that was a really great memory to have. So to give a little bit more context, Justin's father was a police officer, and he was a police officer in a city with a lot of embezzlement going on. Justin understands that his dad wasn't involved, but his dad was going to take the fall. And in light of that, I asked Justin how he learned of his father's death. It was my junior year of high school. I was like 16 going on to 17, and it was Super Bowl day. They were having a couple of people over, and my dad was acting really, really strange, and he kept going back and forth to the bathroom. And I mean, it was very out of character for him, and he would come back, and he just looked very kind of out of it, dazed and confused. So my stepmom followed him into the bathroom, and she found that he was taking a bunch of pills. Like, he, his mouth was just filled with pills. So I went to the hospital and they, they revived him, everything was fine, and then my, my family went down to see him, but they didn't tell me that, that anything had happened until they were there. And then I found out and they're like, oh, it's gonna be fine, it's gonna be fine. But then he ended up having two other heart attacks and then they had to pull the plug. My dad's mom, um, she was the one that made the decision not to tell me until after the fact which I resented her and I, I cut off that relationship once I had found that out, which um, in the grand scheme of things is unfortunate, but because we, we tried to talk about it, but they didn't really see what was wrong. Because I mean, they all got to say their goodbye and make peace and grieve and move forward, but I didn't get that. And I, I, res I resented them for taking that away from me. I had come out to my mom and my stepdad and all my friends and I mean, everyone was very accepting. I was very lucky and I felt like things were going in the right direction and then that had happened. So. It was kind of like I, I was walking and then my legs were knocked out from underneath me and they rolled back down the hill. And it was about really hard for about five years because I went through denial and then um, anger. I was very angry for a long time and closed off and bitter and I just ignored the issue and didn't really want to talk about it. I didn't want to talk about it at all. I just didn't even want it to exist. And I went through this phase where I hated my dad and it was like, why would you do something like this to me? The only way I felt like I had an actual creative outlet was through theater. But I kind of go into this land and go into this other realm so I could just escape my life because at that time I, I, mean, I was bitter and angry and 
I didn't really know how to deal with it or even how to express. Like at the time, I didn't know I was bitter and angry, but looking back, I know I was, was probably not very pleasant to deal with. I didn't share any of it. I just had, I had said, I told, I, I omitted the truth, if you will, which is a lie. I, I was lying to myself and I was lying to others. But I specifically said, oh, you know, he had a heart attack, which had happened, but that wasn't the full story. So not until recently, I told um, like two or three of my like really close friends that about this project and that you and I were going to meet. And they're like, and they're like, oh, whoa, 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 wait, wait, what had happened? So I had to kind of go back and talk about it, which has been nice because I was really nervous to meet you. And I was like, this is going to be the first time I've actually openly and honestly talked about it. What is it like for you now to speak and hear your words talk about your father? What what does it feel? Uh, it feels good. It feels liberating. Like there's a weight lifted off my shoulders because I, it, it it's exhausting lying about yourself or like trying to put on a show and be something that you're not. I don't know how I went on so long just carrying that in and bottling it up. I mean, it affected every relationship I had and it made relationships I had specifically with men I mean even my stepdad too kind of almost almost to the point toxic because I resented just men in general because I just because of someone else's mistakes I projected that onto other people I mean it was hard just specifically trying to build relationships and you know move forward right with my sexuality and things like that I mean it was hard because I wasn't open to letting someone else into my life in any shape way or form because I was like I have my support system like, I feel like the world kind of fucked me over, so I was like, I'm, I'm just not gonna let you in, or I'm gonna let you in, but it's, it's gonna be a facade. It's gonna be totally fake. So that, that's actually been the hardest part. I'm, I'm trying to be more open and honest, and not honest, well, honest in the sense of being more myself in relationships, specifically with men. Because I find myself being kind of cold and reserved and not fully putting myself out there emotionally because I, I think it's more subconscious in the back of my mind that I'm going to get hurt again or if I put myself out there like something bad's going to happen. I, and it's, it's really tough. It's, it's, I mean, I know it though. And I'm, I done, I, I, I'm like, Justin, what are you doing? Like, these people are okay. Like, they're not your father. You can't punish people for other people's mistakes. So I asked Justin about what his life was like during that time. I mean, it's been about 10 years now since my father committed suicide. And I mean, it, it shaped me. It's a piece of who I am. I mean, it's not obviously who I am because we're not defined by one of the worst moments of our lives. But I just want people to know that, you know, sometimes all you need is to talk it out because I didn't have anyone to talk it out with because no one was in my situation. Because I had a lot of self-blame. I was like, oh, you know, I could have done this differently. Maybe I should have called him more. Like, there's nothing I could have done to, to help him. I mean, we could have talked every day. Like, I could have visited him multiple times. We could have lived a block away. I mean, his decision was his decision, and that was his choice. And he had made his choice. And, that, and that's part of the reason why I want to do this projecting, is that maybe people do feel like that after a parent kills himself. And they may be like, oh, maybe I could have changed this, or maybe, oh, I could have done that. But I, I just want people to know that, I mean, it's out of your control. And... I mean, it's a serious issue and it's really taboo in our society, I feel like, especially with the demographic that we are. Touching on that too, I'm, I'm not nervous. I used to be nervous in the past. I was like, well, maybe if I get to that age, maybe I'll go through the same mental process. And I was like, I don't want to ever feel like that. I was like, well, would I do something like that to myself? I was like, I don't feel that way now. But I was like, what if this is something in my genetics? Like, what if this is hereditary that comes out later in my life? And, so that, that kind of freaked me out for a while, just seeing that I was developing and looking more like him. And I was like, oh, well, obviously we came from the same blood, but I just, 
that made me nervous. I didn't want that for myself, obviously. I thought a lot about this with my own father and how much of him was in me. And so I asked Justin to share a little bit about what he's scared of today. I'm scared that I'll be hurt again. And I don't, I don't want to be hurt again. I don't want someone to come in and do that to me again because like I've come so far and I feel good and I, I feel good moving forward and I'm happy. Like I'm actually happy. And that's, that's my ultimate fear is that I would let someone in and that they would break that trust and it would just push me back. And I don't want to go back because I'm happy now. My last boyfriend, it was about maybe a year, a year and a half ago. Um, I told him about it. I was open and honest and he, he of course was very supportive. But then when we broke up, he actually threw that in my face. He um, specifically, he did a whole manipulation piece. He was like, oh, like I'm gonna kill myself. And I was like, excuse me? <laughs> so I was like, you knowing my past and knowing how like I've dealt with all these emotions, I was like, you're like that, you're totally trying to manipulate me and I'm not gonna go for that. And I was like, I don't want someone like that in my life. Like that's just such bad energy. And I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm happy, I'm healthy and I'm moving forward with my life. And I was like, I don't want you in any shape, way or form in it. Whoa. When Justin told this story, it took me back to some deep cuts. I've often felt like a cloud of shame and stigma over me whenever folks learn about my father's suicide. And I learned early on in my life to keep my mouth shut about how my father died. It was when I got in a fight on a playground in a Catholic primary school. It wasn't over sports or a girl or anything like that. It was because a kid told me that my dad was burning in hell because he had killed himself. Yeah, that memory makes an impact. And so over the years, I've always kept my guard up and I've avoided conversations about my father at all costs. But I did try to open up to people that I could trust or I felt I could trust. And generally it worked out pretty good, but sometimes there was blowback. I felt girls who I dated looked at me and my mom differently, and friends would either totally avoid talking about it once it was brought up, or they learned about my father, or worse, they'd ask me specific details about how he destroyed himself. But there was one instance when I was in my early 20s that really jolted me. I had a friend, let's call him Alex, and he and I had grown really close. He was a bit older than me, but super fun and a gregarious guy who was very generous and had many lives worth of stories that dazzled me and I was learning from him and over time we opened up about more delicate experiences in our lives. You know I ended up moving across the country and our communications naturally drifted. Then one night out of the blue I got a phone call from him. Chris he said I'm calling you so you know that it's not your fault. I know how much your dad's suicide weighs on you but you got to know that my death isn't your fault. Of course I asked him what the hell he was talking about and he ended up describing how he was planning to kill himself that night as soon as he got off the phone with me. Serendipitously, uh, I was visiting my mom at the time, and while I kept him talking, I was writing to her on a piece of paper explaining what was happening. And while I was on the phone with him asking him, hey, so where are you living? What's your context? Tell me about your house. What color is it? Asking questions that would be helpful for the police to be able to find where he was at. Uh, he would interrupt and he would, you know, elaborate on his plan. You know, I could tell that he was drunk, but he was also probably the most functional alcoholic that I had met. It just didn't seem like a cry for help. It seemed like he was serious. And we're talking on the phone, and, and then all of a sudden I hear a knock at his door, and he's like, shit, someone's at the door. And he goes, and I hear him fumble with the door, and as he opens it, he yells and yells at me, and he calls me an asshole, and you call the cops on me, and... He's not just furious, he's absolutely devastated, and he's crying, and he's disappointed in me, and he tells me that he thought I would understand, and then the phone hangs up. This whole time, my mom's on the phone with the police operator, and, you know, I'm looking at her, and she 
eventually tells me that they're going to take him into custody for observation for the night. She hangs up. It's like all the trauma that she had experienced around my dad seems to come flooding back, and I'm in shock, and I'm sad and angry, but, you know, I know we did the right thing. And a decade later, I get a friend request from him. He seems to be doing great, and that was one of the times in which it was most jarring. As I'm sitting here listening to Justin, all these memories and feelings come up at a whiplash pace during this first interview. And I know these memories would come up, and um, but again, I, I, I wasn't really prepared of how difficult it would be for me to be fully present because as Justin was speaking, my mind goes on its own little path of connecting to thoughts and memories. And then Justin said this. If, if we did have like a dialogue with him or the dialogues that I would have, I just would like to try to understand why he did it. And I've, I've asked myself that multiple times. I don't really ask myself that anymore just because thinking about it rationally and trying to not focus on it on an emotional level because I'm not as angry anymore. I just, I've accepted it and I just, I am moving forward with my life and I'm not going to let that haunt me because it did haunt me for a really long time and I've, I just want him to know or just the world to know that I mean you can move forward with it and you know it, it's it's always going to be there it's I deal with it on a daily basis but um it's okay like, you can move forward and you can forgive but just don't forget because it, it it made me stronger and that's that's what I'm thankful for I think the most is the the strength and the resilience that it's given me moving forward when we were done I was pretty much in shock I was super grateful for Justin and I was really moved by his story and his affection for his mom. I also loved how open he was about his own fears and efforts to open up and trust others again. And before I got back on my bike, I gave my mom a call and I let her know that I loved her and that the journey had begun. That evening, I officiated one of my oldest friend's weddings in the New York City Public Library. And that was a super intense 24 hours. And looking back, it made a lot of sense that it was the perfect first day. It really kind of like shook me up it made me question the project, question my abilities, but it also reinforced, you know, that there are going to be tough and tricky times with this. But ultimately, what's most important is just having the opportunity to hear and learn from these guys. And so that's what we're going to continue doing. So I want to thank you for listening to this uh, episode with Justin. And I want to give you a little bit of a taste of what you're going to hear in the next episode with playwright and actor Michael Thomas Walker who created Bubba, which is a one-man play around his relationship with his father, his father's life, and also finding meaning after his father's death. And I just decided to keep him in my heart, the good and the bad, and to love him for who he was, and to know that he brought me into this world, and whether it's through the bad things he did or the good things, he shaped me into the human being that I am, and I'm very, very grateful for that.